Hi, welcome to Drone Talk with Parker and Phil. Phil, Phil in Lonely Land. Go ahead, Phil. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! What's the secret to success? Uh, to have my own freedom—that's just the sweetest thing. I am in charge of my own destiny. Sometimes intelligent conversation mixed with witty banter, often just stream of consciousness but mainly a dialogue between creatives to find out what motivates us in film, art, and life. This is Creative by Design with Philip LG. What's up, beautiful people? I'm Philip LG. Welcome to the show. Today, I have a conversation with somebody who I've known for a couple years who I consider a friend and a mentor and someone who constantly refuses to let me settle or not work hard enough. He believes that some of the keys to success lie in not only being insanely passionate about what you do, but more importantly, working harder than the other guy. So here's my conversation with Gimbal Whisperer, drone pilot, extraordinaire, Parker Jokers. But dude, first off, thanks for having me. Um, I like the fact that your uh, podcast style is much like my uh, my my dating style or my bar style. I'm married. I'm not dating. It's go ugly early. So you know, just get, get the ugliest, gnarliest thing out of the way in the hurry. In a hurry, much like work, and uh, you realize then um, it's all downhill from there. Uh, my name is Parker Jokers. I am a retired Air Force Tech Sergeant. I was the Chief of Public Affairs for the Contingency Response Wing at McGuire right before I got out. My passion is um, storytelling. It is visual mostly, but uh, words words hurt and words can also change. Um, explaining uh, the world that we lived in in the military and the world we live in now to people who don't have the um, ability to do so is really important to me. So I uh, spent 13 years as a bomb loader in the Air Force and then uh, cross-trained into public affairs in 2006 and then never had a bad day at work. Uh, I always used to say that my my best day at work uh, in or my worst day at work in public affairs was better than my best day at work in the on the flight line. Um, I, I learned a lot about who I was by going out every day and learning who other people do, who other people were. And about two years before I got out, I um, built a drone to lift a GoPro over one of our camps so that we could see how we were building these remote austere locations that we were uh, building. And so I started to do a, a drone-based time-lapse and went down the rabbit hole hard and found that I had a passion for RC flight from, from childhood that I could turn into um, a mix of my photography my photography passion, and then ended up building bigger and bigger and bigger drones. And I, I like to tell people the biggest lie I ever told my wife was, honey, I swear to God, this is only going to cost $400. So <laughs> <laughs> at this point, I'm probably a hundred grand into it. And I've been making enough money to pay my rent for three years while I've been out. I retired in October of 14. And I live in the New York City area, which is um, serendipitous for my career path. Uh, there's a lot of advertising, a lot of commercials, a lot of high-end realty. Our motto at Propeller Heads, uh, which is my company, is we'll fly for food. We, uh, we tend to um, basically uh, adapt the most um, convenient technology to the most difficult solutions. And at this point, I've become a, a subject matter expert on drones, and I'm a DJI ambassador. I am also uh, a representative for B&H Photo. I've done uh, rep work for Autorama. I work for DJI in the city for a company called Camrise, which is a major, major uh, uh, sales um, the, the distributor for DJI. And they also have the uh, only DJI experience store in the country. So I'm a representative and a professional there. Uh, basically, um, if it flies or is remote controlled, I want to have some part of it. And it's been an amazing last few years just watching this um, community explode into a um, – it's become an industry. And, and I don't want to be an industrialist. I want to be a creative still. So it's been kind of a battle for me to – 
stay out of the engineering world and stay out of the drone um, design world. I've been trying just to stay concentrating on using technology to tell stories. It's gotten easier, but at the same time, it always just comes back to, um, you know, how, you know, do you have a creative eye? You have a drone that'll do most of the work for you, but if you don't know how to operate a camera, it's going to be kind of pointless to go up and, and, um, and, and fly. So, uh, it's been an interesting experience watching people that, frankly, some people have no business doing what we do. But I've also learned that the system tends to filter those out pretty easily because you still have to be creative. You could have all the daddy's money in the world and you could have the best tools in the, in the world. But if you can't fly because you didn't put in the time to practice flying, you're going to have a bad time. So. Uh, the more I, more worried I get, the more reassured I get as well that there's always going to be a skill set for a professional pilot. And that is, you know, if you were to give me one duty title, you know, what are you? What do you do? I would say I'm a professional pilot. I'm a professional drone pilot. Um, at my heart, though, in my darkest, you know, holy of holies, I will tell you I'm a, I'm a visual communicator that uses technology to do it. That's awesome. I think that... Uh... Man, there's a lot of stuff there. So, and I, and I know this, but you, you literally do everything. Like you're just always busy, always involved, always doing something. Um, and I, and I think that that obviously is the type of person that you are. Like you have to stay busy. And I kind of want to get to the community uh, because what you know what you specialize in is is such a unique thing. But I, I'm going to hold off on that because I, I. Th- I want to point something out. I think it's interesting. You're like the third or fourth person I've talked to who uh, did time in the service as a visual communicator, but didn't start out that way. So I'm interested to know at what point did you switch and why did you switch? That's a great question. Like, how did you find out? Like, how did you find out about the job? So my journey into uh, public affairs is uh, weirder than most. And if you know me, that's saying something. Um, (laughs) I was deployed in 2003 to Iraq as a third country national escort. I was a weapons loader at the time stationed at Tyndall. And they sent me to Iraq to Talil Air Base during AEF Silver to basically babysit a bunch of Iraqis that were working on the base and providing us the services that, you know, they're building sidewalks and cleaning trash and bathrooms and doing stuff like that and helping cook food. And there were escorts for each one of these, each one of these individuals. So there's seven, seven people per escort and no more than 50 feet away. And you had to keep counting them and basically make sure they didn't run off. Um, Wonderful people. It was an amazing experience. While I was there, I started writing about my trip and, um, by the time I was done, I had the entire E-ring of the Pentagon reading my stuff. I had thousands of people reading it every week. I had a book offer. I had, I was in Parade Magazine. It got a little out of hand. And I came home and I decided to put it into a book. And um, sat, at, sat at the end of runway for an entire year after I got back. Uh, I got put out on a little bench at the end of the at the end of the base where the jets would pull up and I'd pull pins and it was actually the best job <laughs> in the world but I got a chance during the time when jets would show up to sit and edit this book and I had this baby of mine that I literally basically just expunged my soul into it was therapy for me and I took it into the public affairs office and said I'd like to publish this and she said you can't uh, there's an ethics regulation that prevents you from profiting off your time in the military. And it was, it was devastating, but understandable. Uh, and I said, well, fine, if I can't beat them, I want to join them. I want to become a public affairs writer. It took three years to fight my way through the process to become a PAO. And when I finally did it was in 2006, uh, about the same time I was in uh, public affairs, I was in BPASW at DINFOS. I was in the basic public affairs writers course my book got selected to be in the Operation Homecoming anthology from the National Endowment for the Arts, some of the sections from it. I had a section in the middle called Camp Muck Among Us. I had a, I had a um, section at the end called uh, The Hardest Letter to Write. And I actually closed the book down. And it was a National Endowment for the Arts um, uh, anthology project from military writers. And I um, was flown to L.A. to read some of it. 
and then I was in um I was asked to uh read some of it again and then they ended up having John Krasinski, who was in the office, read one of my stories for wow. a movie that got nominated for an Oscar for the uh, documentary Oscar, it lost out to Taxi from the Dark Side that year in 2006. And this, and then they had a book opening, and they had the release for the book at the National, at, excuse me, at the Library of Congress while I was at Dinfos. I, you know, left school one afternoon and took a couple classmates and got in my blues and sat in the library, the Grand Hall of the Library of Congress. My parents were there, and the next day I had to turn in my features assignment. So, um, it was kind of bizarre. Uh, you know, it was like. You know, a, a book opening, a book, a book release at the Net Library of Congress, and twenty five cents was going to get me a cup of coffee at Dinfos. It was, it was kind of a, a, a an interesting situation. But I um, went to, I, I joined public affairs as a result of that, and uh, it was one of those things where the Air Force almost it taught me how to write professionally, but it did break my verbose. Um, full of my, my writing style had a ton of descriptors in it and it was way too flowery and it was way too, um, uh, maudlin for lack of a better Mm -hmm. word. And the air force did teach me how to write concisely. Uh, the, the one sentence that both broke me and fixed me was brevity is the key to clarity. So I ended up writing a lot tighter than I used to, but I didn't have a lot of time or space to put in all of the descriptors. And I did find that features were my favorite. I was able to write, much more descriptive, um, almost stories while I was writing about actual events by writing features and not straight news. So I was able to, you know, once again, fight my way to who I was in the military. But that is how I became a public affairs writer. And then once I was in uh, school, I realized that my childhood love of photography had, had really never gone away. And I loved being able to take my own photos for my stories. And after a little while, I was getting much more positive feedback on the photos because you can have instant feedback. Everyone's going to see a photo instantly, but only a few people are going to read the whole story. So you can grab people by the neck and give them a good shake with a great photo and tell them everything you wanted to tell them in a 300-word story or in a you know a three-page feature that people may not read all the way through. And... I found that the the instant hit, you know, the tie the tie the vein off and smack that, you know, smack that drug into your system with the with a good photo was much more rewarding to me and much more enjoyable for me to go out and shoot 7000 pictures than it was, you know, and get five or six selects than it was to, you know, spend 3 days writing a story that seven people would read. So I uh, you know, for me it was it, it was about, you know, maximizing my ability to tell a story, but it was also a little bit of a, of a cop-out because it was a lot less work. It felt like you mentioned something that I, I wanted to like circle back to is in 2006, you built a drone because you had a hair up your butt about, you know, making surveillance photos or, or photos of the construction that was happening. Like, where did that come from? Cause 2006, the drone scene didn't exist. There was, it wasn't even a thing. That- right. This was about probably around 12 when that happened. Um, I, uh, was a contingency response wing public affairs photojournalist. So basically I was the storyteller for the unit. And what we would do is we would take a dirt road and a empty field and turn it into an airport anywhere in the world within a few hours and it was pretty unique capability. And we've, we've packed really light. I'm like a whole team could be as small as 30 people. And I wanted to be able to show something from nothing. I wanted to show an empty field that came out of, that came out of whole cloth or an airport that came out of nothing, you know, just built from, built from our parts and our boxes. So to do that, I asked the army unit that was right next to where our training area said, if they'd give me a helicopter and the air force, actually, my, my boss was like, you're not allowed to fly in an army helicopter. I'm like, well, A, that's a stupid idea, and B, that's dumb because you're dumb and dumb, you're dumb face, and I, <laughs> you know, I cut it off and right. poopy, poopy head, and it's, you know, you're dumb. Well, you're dumb, you know. So um, I realized that I had the ability in my in my toolbox to be able to lift a GoPro and just get it up there long enough and hold it there for a few shots every few minutes and then and then you know put it together into a into a rough time lapse or video it and turn it into a time lapse 
And uh, at, the, at that time, Jones were so new that no one really knew how to say no to that. No one knew that that wasn't probably something you'd be flying around an airport. And <laughs> I built a small tricopter and put a GoPro on the front of it, a Hero 2, you know, if, if it dates me at all. And uh, uh, a black one, though, Hero 2 black, baby. Yes. Uh, that dates me at all. Just a fixed, just fixed to the front of the nose. It wasn't even on a gimbal. It wasn't even, it wasn't even with a downlink. There was no video feed. It was just me eyeballing it, pointing it in roughly the right direction and hoping that I had a 180 degree field of view and hopefully I'd get the camp in there somewhere. And the results were shockingly bad, but they were also <laughs> awesome. So people would look up, see this thing fly overhead and then they'd look over and they go, Oh, it's just Joker. No big deal. So I got away with a great deal of nonsense because I was who I was and I was able to, you know, they always, if there was a camera around, it was mine. Um, and they learned to, to know that I was, I had their best interest at heart. So I had a unit that was really supportive and then, you know, they got the drones got bigger because the cameras got better and I wanted to be able to look at what I saw. And then I wanted to be able to, uh, you know, steer the camera and then stable, stabilize the camera, then steer the camera, then actually coordinate everything in the call together. And suddenly I'm head padding and belly rubbing and, and dancing and juggling and on a unicycle. And and it's it's um, it, it got one of those things where, you know, how did someone said to me once, how did you get to be where you are today? In other words, how did I get to be basically Tony Stark, where I get to go into my bat cave and pull out all of the cool suit and all of the toys and um, go out and, and, and change the world with my technology? Basically, that makes me Batman, I guess. But but um, I said, all you have to do to be me is do every single thing you've done up to this point. Um, I have, am where I am in my world because of the combination of insatiable curiosity, inability to take a joke, inability to say, you know, inability to, to, to actually get kicked down when someone says, that's dumb. Um, basically, it, it comes from a strong belief in my own geekiness and, and, an, and, a, and an embrace of the fact that nerd is a good word. And the um the desire to see more you know all of our, our our constant struggle as a photographer as a visual creator is to show people a different perspective right it's to get lower get higher get closer get inside something and show people a perspective they've never oh i've never seen it that way before a, the drone was the ultimate expression of that for me because when I started, you had to be one of the kings of the nerds. I mean, you remember one of my early drones. They were just cobbled is the word that describes it, right? They were just, it was knobs and tubes and wire and prayer and lots of hope. And it was a little bit of insanity and a lot of creativity and, well, a little more insanity than that. But, but basically, you'd have a 50% success rate. I mean, if you could get the damn thing to shoot a couple shots, you were doing really well. Video was just straight just sorcery right <laughs> so a person who can go to the store now and swipe a credit card and spend fifteen hundred dollars on a phantom four and have full 4k footage at 60 frames a second perfectly stabilized with a seven kilometer range for 30 minute battery life at 50 miles an hour with a full digital downlink proximity avoidance and airspace awareness shut up and take my money yeah you know what i mean yeah. I wouldn't be able to do one of those things for under 10 grand five years ago. That's bananas. Three years ago, I couldn't do them all for 50 grand. And now I can do them all for 1500 bucks. The video link alone in that thing would have cost me four grand. Not well, it would have cost me with all of components for everything I need to do for a full digital link. I would have cost me $1,800 just two years ago. And that's not even the drone. That's not the flight controller and the controllers and the radios and sorry, the controllers and the batteries and the, all of the engineering. You know, DJI's got three thousand engineers in their basement. I have me, and I don't have an engineering degree. So at a certain point, you go from being you know king of the nerds to being a technology integrator and to being a an individual that goes, all right, I'm going to stop with this chip, I'm going to knock this chip on my shoulder off and realize that I can do more with less money and quicker with less hassle and go back to what I wanted to do, which was not be a nerd King. One of the, you know, the, 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 you know, what, what did I call it? The drone whisperer, right? <laughs> right. They were basically carbon fiber divas with polar disorder, right? They were just horribly, horribly unpredictable, dangerous things, right? They were my first drone was called Skynet. If that tells you as much as I how much I trusted them, right? But at certain points, it would just get this nervous giggle, and you go, "Oh shit, here we go!" And it would just lunge, and it would just you know 
pray it wasn't lunging at your head because you, 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 every now and then they, they were based on technology that just wasn't mature. And so we were pushing them to the bleeding edge of their the bleeding edge of their capability. And as a result, we ended up drawing up some of the most um, permanent rules in the industry. I mean, you never fly over people. Why? Because drones fall. They don't do it anymore, but they used to just go like a, like a, like you would cut a, a hedge trimmer through a marionette string, and they just go. Ugh. And objects held aloft solely by thrust don't work when you take away their take away their 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 batteries. So you'd have a solder joint break loose, and the whole thing would just shut off. And just literally, it'd be like something in the Matrix, you know, not like this, and it just falls to the floor. And and then you'd go get your dust broom, and you try and figure out from the parts what you did wrong. So. Those days, thankfully, are long gone, but they have given me a healthy respect for the crazy. Not having to worry about that anymore, now coming back to where I wanted to be, which is a creative, and to be an artist, and to be a photographer, and an area photographer, and to show people a sunset from 500 feet, or to show people what it's like to fly over a cloud, over a valley, or to show people what their building will look like when they build the building. You know, to put a camera in a position where there's just empty space, but nothing but hope, and you just shoot a panorama from that perspective, and then some artist takes that data and puts it into a video or puts it into a product, they can hand someone who wants to buy that apartment a set of goggles, and he can walk through his apartment right up to the window and then see the images that I took to show him the view he's going to have from his new apartment that hasn't even had one nail driven into one board yet. <laughs> um, <sighs> When you can do that for a client in two hours and turn around high-resolution imagery, and you just look at that and you go, I don't care if I don't build anymore. I don't care if I don't have to fight my way to the top of this field because I'm the only one who could figure it out. You have to flee, You have to fall back on a whole new set of, set of um, skill sets. And in the end, it all comes down to the guy with the most money still doesn't win this fight thankfully, because he still has to know how to do what he wants to do, not just how to do it. You know what I mean? He, oh, the easy part is just point, get the drone in the air and point it at the subject, right? Well, but yeah, but is the light right? And do you have the right lens selection? Do you have the right filters? And are you using the right settings? And are you shooting it in the right order? And are you doing it as a professional using a tool? I mean, don't tell me that they're still shooting, you know, professional newspaper reporters are still using film. There's a reason they're on digital. And there's a reason they're using the latest technology because it allows them to take better pictures with the craft that they've been honing for years and years and years and years. So, right, so my, my journey, my journey in the last four years has gone from, you know, the knob and tube monstrosities that I was the only one that could put together. There's probably four people on the East coast that could do what I could do because I was just the only one crazy enough not to give up. Right. I had the ability of being in the military and still having a paycheck and still having a roof over my head and, and then go out and make $300 a month doing this. But it was enough for me to buy that next motor. It's enough for me to buy, you know, to spend those six nights a week on the internet learning and absorbing and asking and, and you know, I, I didn't have to start from square one. So my military service was an amazing enabler for me. It prepared me not only to accept failure, it prepared me to take chances and it prepared me to be able to take risks. And if it failed completely, I was still going back to work the next day. I was still able to be who I was with my uniform on. The, the joy came from being able to merge those two together. And and that's what I suggest people do is to find literally what makes your ducky quack. You know, what is it that gets you out of bed in the morning? Don't tell me what you're good at. Don't tell me what you think you do well. Tell me what you're passionate about. And I'll step back from 100 feet away and tell you what you're good at. Because if you get up early in the morning and you think about it and you work on it at least once a day and you go to bed thinking about it, you will be better at it than nearly anyone else on the planet because they don't do that. The, the one separation between people that are good and people who are not is practice. That's it. You know, we used to say in the milita military, you know, the, there's no substitute for trigger time, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. There's, there's no substitute for putting that camera in your hands and shooting a thousand frames. You may get two keepers, but the things you'll learn, even if it's just tightening up your muscle memory, even if it's just tightening up your reflexes, even if it's just tightening up your ability to look at patterns and people and light and color or whatever it is you're working on that day, you will fail. You'll step on your wang 10 times that day <laughs> and you will never do it again, at least eight of those times, you know? Yep. 
um, you know, you have in the military have the ability to go out and completely, can we curse on this podcast? Fuck yeah. Oh, thank God. <laughs> you will go out and step on your dick every single day. And if you've got your safety shot, you put that thing in the bag and you moonwalk off stage, man. You've done it. So then you go out and you push it a little further. You go, oh, that's that screwed up. Didn't get that shot. Oh, didn't screw that up. If you're a civilian or if you're on the outside and you're trying to work for a client and he doesn't maybe understand the fact that you're out there pushing to the point of failure, that is the biggest benefit you have in the military is you have the ability to get the stuff they've trained you to do pretty easily. Mm-hmm. The bar, let's be honest, y'all, the bar is pretty low, right? Yeah. So, but you can push it beyond that point with no extra permission. If you have a boss that doesn't want you to take chances, you need to seriously, you know, maybe go to his boss and say, why is it I'm not allowed to improve my craft? Because if your boss is worth the salt, he's going to want you out there failing. Yeah. Um, And that's one thing that I've like told every Marine that's ever worked for me. I'm like, listen, the there's zero risk involved in you failing. There's zero repercussions. If you go out right. and attempt to do your job and fail, it's the only place in the world you can have. That. Exactly. And you know, if I, and I, because I, I do almost more freelancing now than I do it inside the military. Like if I'm, if I'm working for a client that's, um, you know, paying me good money to do a thing and I fail, like they're not going to hire me again or they're not going to pay me because I didn't do the job well enough. Right. Do in the military, I fail. Great. I learned a thousand lessons and I can go out and do it again or I'm pushing the edge and failing. Like this, that's a fantastic learning experience. And I don't think a lot of young, you know, young troops get that right away. You want to set your bar so high that your failures look like successes. I wish I came up with that line, but I didn't. James Cameron said that. Ah. You want to push yourself to the point of, needless to say, you want to push yourself to the point of failure on every task. Even if it's just pushing that exposure a little further, even if it's just getting that microphone a little closer, even if it's just changing your angle a little bit dirtier. You know what I mean? I have a a coworker here in New York that says, make it filthy. (laughs) I want it. Oh, that's just filthy. You know what I mean? It's just so wrong. It's right. You know what I mean? Just to the point where you may get lucky, you know, you might just capture magic and you may not know it till you see it, but you won't get it unless you try. You know, people fail three times and go, book this, it sucks. And they stop Mm -hmm. and they'll never get good enough to be as good as they want to be because that line between skill and talent, the ambition and talent never converge. The only way you get those two lines together is hard work. Mm Mm-hmm. It's just consistent practice, 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 you know, try, fail, try, fail, get up, get knocked down 10, get up 11. And it's a, it's a total skill set. You have to learn it. You have to learn that you've got to get kicked in the teeth by life in order to learn what blood tastes like. And then you've got to have that in your system. And you just want to be able to just punch back and hit harder. And, you know, I fly a little higher, a little faster, a little closer. And people can say I'm insane, but I go, yeah, well, did you fly through that fire? No. Okay. That's why I'm me and you're not. Nice. Exactly. <laughs> I love it. And I've seen you fly and you are a crazy bastard. Um, <laughs> I thought I, and I think, I think I, uh, I think I told you this too, whenever I bought my, you know, and I, I still have my little phantom three pro I bought it and I, I thought I was getting pretty good. <laughs> and then I came over to your house and I watched you fly. I was like, Oh, I'm nope. That's not, I have no idea what I'm doing. It's because I went out every single day I came home after work in the military and I flew until all my batteries were dead because it was my juggling. It was my Zen. It was my playing a guitar. It was my painting. It was my, my ability to take my mind out and just put it in a jar and just let the thing quiver on a shelf somewhere. I didn't care. I was out flying. I was in the aircraft. I was a bird. Mm-hmm. Right. And I just did that to the point where it just became muscle memory. And if I hadn't spent a thousand hours just burning circles with a training drone in the backyard, just having fun, I never would have been able to do some of the things I've done later. I mean, there's video out there at the Eddie Adams workshop of me. Now, they had three gigantic telephone pole X's out in a huge bonfire to celebrate the 30th anniversary of the Eddie Adams workshop. And I'm out there with Bob Houlihan and Jeff Cavanaugh and a couple other guys that I know that are, that are on the black team at Eddie Adams. And I went, I'm flying through that. I'm flying under it, actually. And the bonfire was like 15 feet above the telephone poles, let alone under the fire, yeah. right? And instantly, 60 cameras come out. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, I think it was one of the guys from B&H looked at me and said, you're insane. I said, never tell me the odds. Get out of my way. And I flew through it like four times. 
um, I found soot on my drone in places I didn't know that they could eat soot. <laughs> but, but I knew from the skill set I had that, you know, you go over a fire, you're going to have a strong updraft, you're going to have a sink because the air is, the air is, is uh, less dense because it's so hot. So you're going to have a, a balloon from the blow. You're going to have a sink from the lack of density, and you're going to punch through, and you're going to have a you're going to have an optic system problem. So I knew all these things was going to happen, but in my head it just looks like some crazy bastard flying through a fire. Mm-hmm. So I you know I did a mock run, and then I did a, a fire run, and then I came back around. And I said I can do this seven more times. Who wants to shoot it? And suddenly the flashes are out, and they're setting up tr- lights, and they're you know, and I went through in slow mo, and I went through you know I went through at speed, and I went through slow, and I knew it's just like running your finger through a flame mm-hmm. and a candle. If you don't stop it there, you're not going to get your finger burned. So all I'm doing is just running it over the top of this flame. Yeah. And it's also blowing itself cool at the exact, exact same time. So it's the 15 things that you know from practicing for the last 10 years that make everybody else look at you and go, you're one crazy motherfucker. And all I'm doing is thinking I have about a two and a half foot sink when I hit that, hit that fire. That's the only thing I need to worry about. So, you know, aim for the hole, maintain momentum, forget the fire, and just push on through it. Everyone else looks at you going, you're flat insane. I'm thinking, my drone's insured, brother. Let's do this. <laughs> One thing that I think that goes along with that is, and I tell people this too, is um, there's a lot to be said for being a creative storyteller and an artist, air quotes, artist, you know, all this stuff. But yeah, in order yeah. to be success- creative, I hate that right. word, but I, you know. Yeah. I almost a lot of times consider myself more of a technician because... I mean, I've spent, you know, a decade or more figuring out the technical side of how to do things so that when the time comes and I'm in a situation like that, maybe not that crazy because I do a different job, but you have got to understand that your role is to be a master of your technology. It's just a tool. You know, it's a shitty craftsman blames his tools, right? Mm -hmm. But if you don't know how to operate it, that makes you a shitty craftsman. Um, I agree. The guy who says, I could take better pictures if I just had a better camera. I like to say to people, like, you know, I don't bitch, please. If you saw the Perlitzer Prize winning photo, I remember it was like 2006, five or six, it was Guggenfelter, I believe, if I remember correctly, was in Afghanistan with an iPhone 4 and shot a blurry ass photo of a guy, some guys in a bunker that won him a Perlitzer that year. Don't tell me. It was full of emotion. Mm-hmm. You were there. Yep. Do not tell me you need a better camera to tell people where you are. Do not tell me that you need a better camera to be able to express your emotions because the stuff you've got in your hands, people would have killed for five years ago. Yeah. You know, um, understanding your limitations and understanding what you can do and what you can't do. So I'd made it. I like to take challenges and I like to go out and I like to walk through the city and only use my phone or only use one focal length or only use one ISO setting mm-hmm. and say, OK, now, how am I going to work myself around this limitation today? This is my challenge. Or I'll go out and I'll say today the challenge is the seven deadly sins. I'm only allowed to shoot pictures that denote the seven deadly mm-hmm. sins. Find yourself a, a workshop, a weekend workshop that gives you a theme. Mm-hmm. And you're going to go, what the hell am I going to do with the theme of inspiration or the theme of color or balance or the word harmony or just like, what is this shit? Mm-hmm. And then so you have to walk out in the city and make that ducky quack, yep. right? You've got to find a way to tell your story. If you don't, and you may fail, you, you will fail. Um, you know, the people who can pull it all together are kind of supernatural, but they are not us. You know, there are people who are savants. You aren't one of them. <laughs> Neither am I. Right. No. Um, you would know, buddy. You know what I mean? Yeah. You'd have a job doing this. It, you're like the rest of us, the other 99.9%. And you know who I mean. But if you look back at the people who are that one-tenth of one percent, they're just like us. They just work harder. Yes. And you ask them why, and they say, because I love it. Mm-hmm. If you don't get out of bed, you're not going to shoot the sunrise, right? If you're not already on that job site, you're not going to get any better at what you do because you're not out there doing it originally. So if you have a passion for it, I don't care if it's underwater basket weaving, if it's Tibetan throat singing, if it's whatever, shifts in bottles, I don't give a fuck. If you don't care, you're never going to get better at it. But then again, if you do care, you're probably going to be better at it than anyone else on the planet. Own it. Mm -hmm. And I'm the one who gets up in the morning and goes to this crazy shit with drones because I absolutely love giggling like a six-year-old when I can get that thing to fly through a hula hoop at 70 miles an hour, right? I'm the one who, you know, that was stupid. You know, how many times we laughed at a crash, right? (laughs) You know, 
when you go out and you just say, well, if it fails, it's going to be epic. And if it wins, it's going to be epic. So we might as well do it because if we don't, we're going to wish we did. And we're all going to say, we're going to watch someone else do it on YouTube and go, shit, that was epic. I can do that. Nothing pisses me off more than seeing amazing work that I didn't do. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Especially if you know you can do it. Oh yeah. Or like if I just had gotten out of bed that day, that's how I judge myself against somebody else. It's not how good my work is. Is it, does he care more? Does he want it more? Because if he wants it more, he's going to get more. And I have one skill set, and that's my passion. That's it. Mm -hmm. That's the only thing I'm good at is caring about what I love. You've got to find what makes your ducky quack because if you don't, no one else will. And you've got to go out there and you've got to just follow your passion. You know, I love to take pictures and I'm a nerd that loves RC and I had the, 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 the time and the ability and the, the patience and I had some amazing mentors. I've got some incredible mentors. I wouldn't be where I am without my mentors. So, you know, it, we have some rules and I call them the Wookiee rules and I'll provide them to you and you can post them. I want you, I want to share them with everybody. And the rule number one is always strive to do epic shit. Yep. If you're not getting out of bed to kick ass every day, stay in bed. You're wasting people's time, including your own. You should be getting some beauty sleep because you're, you're, you're ugly. Trust me. You, you shouldn't, you should be out there working harder. You know, associate with scary, smart people that make you raise your game. If you're in the, if you're the smartest person in the room and you are, and you are looking around and you don't, you don't see anyone there that can teach you anything, you're an idiot and you're in the wrong room. You don't have a mentor that scares you with some of his skills of some regard, then you probably need to find better mentors. You know, go to workshops, meet experts, reach out to them online and say, could you look at my portfolio or can you look at my work? or Could you critique this work? Which takes me to my next point is if you're not getting critique on your work, if you care so much about it that you think it, your shit doesn't stink, it stinks. Mm -hmm. It's shit. You have to have someone tell you that it needs to work in certain areas. And you have to be honest enough with yourself to listen to that and make the changes that you understand to be right. If you own it so deeply that you can't change anything, then it's going to be crap. You're never going to get any better because growth is all about, you know, you learn through growth, right? You learn through failure. You got to come in and have someone tell you your timing's off or your lighting is wrong. Or what if you were to be a step lower or a step over? Why didn't you catch this emotion? Why did you not get the, why did you get the peak of motion and of emotion? You know, all these things that, that we work on every single time we put a camera to our eyes or every time we put a pen to stylus or anytime we try and make something that explains something to somebody the, using our art if you aren't listening for feedback you're never going to grow and therefore everyone around you is going to just move right past you i couldn't agree more and when i was coming up i had a couple people i worked for both civilian and military who were incredibly brutal on my photography on my video work um, on everything i did and it's painful man at, at, at the time it's so rough but I find myself when people ask me for feedback now doing the same thing, not not taking things personal, but just like really, really nitpicking work because that's the only way you're going to notice it and get better and not do it again. Oh, yeah. I couldn't tell you the times I've walked in with, I made a thing, you <laughs> yeah. know, and it's glowing and it's heavy in your hands and it's beautiful and it's swallowed in a rag and you lay it in front of them and the guy goes, holy fuck, that's an ugly baby. <laughs> Now, here's the, here's the corollary to that. When one of your troops or one of your coworkers or someone trusts you enough to consider you a mentor and they walk up to you with work, you don't blow it off. Mm -hmm. You have the honest responsibility to provide them constructive feedback. You have to understand that you have been given a gift to give them your insight. They respect it doesn't mean you can blow it off. It doesn't mean you can shit on it. You have to say, this is why, right? If it's not your style, say it. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't like the way you're always underexposed, but I can see how your style works for you. We had an exercise that we did occasionally where you go, give me your five photos, five favorite photos. Go to the internet, go to the world, find mm -hmm. them, right? And not only would that show me what you love, it would show me how you think and see the world and how you are trying to achieve it, right? So we can take those photos apart. How did he do this? You can deconstruct the way somebody sees their world by the photos they choose. You have to be able to know your gear. Mm -hmm. But technology is a crutch. Yes. It's, it's just an enabling tool. I like to say, just like the pilot, this drone is only a tool. And if you don't know how to work the whole holistic system, 
you know, the new drones have made that all, all easier. It now comes back to, do you know why you're taking off? Mm-hmm. Do you know why you're pulling the camera out of the bag? Do you know why you're stepping up to the subject? What is it about the subject that made you tell the story? It's always about the story. Did you know you were going to retire and then pursue uh, your current job, pursue prop heads? Or was that something that happened that you were like, oh, I'm just going to keep doing this um, after I get out? Or like, what was that evolution like? How did you decide from, I'm, you know, build this monstrosity with a GoPro into doing what you're doing now? Like, how did you get there? And what was the mindset like over the past, what is it, five or six years? Yeah, there were three major things that happened that changed me from being just a hobbyist with a GoPro on a camera to me being a professional drone pilot in New York City. Uh, The first one was um, the first drones, one of the first drones I made, I I was at a a party and one of my next door neighbor's father was a realtor and said, I'll pay you for these photos. I went, what? You mean I can actually make money doing this? And I looked at my wife and I went, did you hear that? I can actually pay for all this stuff back. And she's like, and you're not doing it already? (laughs) So, um, (laughs) so, you know, she's smarter than I am. But um, but the second thing was uh, about a year before I got out and I was already starting to do this on the weekends and in the afternoons and trying to make a little bit of money to pay for better drones and to get good at this. And there was always somebody with a bigger drone. I mean, there were some people that were doing cinema long before I was, and there was always somebody with the $40,000 system, but I was always paying for it. You know, my stuff was under a thousand bucks usually. And so I was, you know, I called it the cod grind. I was just shooting houses and I love, I still love shooting houses because realtors are awesome and homes don't move. And it's, you know, it's a subject that, that I know well. Um, it, I ended up going to a workshop where I uh, ran into, uh, Jeremy Locke, who at the time had just gotten out. And right now he's shooting for Nat Geo and he's traveling around the world. He's doing really well, but you know, about a, about six, eight months after he got out in the military, he shows up at the workshop and, and, and someone said, how you doing? And he goes, well, I'm starving. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And every one of us looked at each other and went, I am fucked. If the seven time military photographer of the year can't make money doing photography, I am not going to make money doing photography. (laughs) So I, that is not going to be my chosen career right now. I know I knew instantly that that's not what I was going to be. That was always kind of my secret. That's what I'll do when I get out. I'll just shoot pictures. Mm -hmm. Right. And that dog wouldn't hunt. Suddenly I realized that that was going to be a really hard road to hoe. So, uh, road to hoe. So, um, I realized that I needed a niche and then I, and basically the same thought I said, well, good thing I'm already a drone guy. And so, that that stuck and then uh i uh injured my back and failed a pt test and kind of got forced into a referral epr where i wasn't going to be able to get promoted and i hit higher tenure mm-hmm. so the third thing was basically being kicked, kicked out of the nest you know mama bird doesn't want me anymore she's sick of bringing me food and when the eagle stops shitting on you every two weeks you really reevaluate what you can do and what you can't yeah and Every month since then, I've paid the rent with my drones. But you know, there, you know, we we with Finn in the winter, and we do well in the summer. But we are, um, we still have people calling. You know what I mean? The longer I'm around, the more my name is out, the more my reputation is out. And I have, I do what clients think I need to do rather than what I want to do. And so we're, we're starting to change that dynamic a little bit. With Sam getting here, we're going to start shooting a lot more stock footage, which is a money maker year round mm-hmm. uh when you can put footage out for people to find and sell we do amazing footage we've been practicing it for years and years and years but traditionally we shoot this amazing life-changing stuff for our clients and then we hand it all over to them on an nda and we never see it again well i could look it up on the products they make but you know i've shot a, a hundred sunsets and i'm proud of every one of them if i can shoot a wind turbine and then sell that footage i don't have to go out and you know drive to North Carolina, maybe one job next year. Maybe I can, maybe I can shoot more turbines. Maybe I can go out to a, you know, an abandoned radar site, or I can shoot a a yacht or two, or I can go out and do the things that I want to do that help me make money. You know, so I want to be more in control of my own career. So that's one of our long-term projects in the, in the future is to start turning our revenues, adding some more revenue streams, because there are a lot of drone pilots out there right now, and they all have phantoms, and they're all able to do pretty good work at the phantom level. But as soon as you start getting into cinema, 
it either goes Inspire 2, which I have, and there are more and more people with them, or heavy lift. And while I know some people that do heavy lift, I've dabbled in that world, and I just frankly don't want to do that. I don't want to go down that road. I could spend a lot of money and have a lot of ulcers <laughs> and freak out lifting $70,000 cameras, or I could shoot building inspections and backplates in the city and things like that where, you know, I'll go out and shoot for an entire day and I'll bring back $3,500. Mm-hmm. That, that adds up. Yeah. So, you know, I do three of those a month. I'm doing pretty well. Um, and I don't always do three a month, but over the cumulative month, you know, I'm working at DGI and I'm speaking and I'm making 300 here and 500 here and a thousand here and three grand every now and then at the end of the month, I say, are our bills paid? Yes. Okay. Then I'm a success. I'm not a loser this month. That is freelance life. But then again, I get to sleep in on a Tuesday and, you know, perhaps I should go to the library and find another book, or maybe I'll just go to the mall, or maybe I'll, maybe I'll make some phone calls, or maybe I'll go out and practice, and I don't have to be at work that morning. I, had a, uh, I have a coworker of mine that said to me, you know, being a freelancer is about making hay while the sun shines. It's not going. It's going to rain some days. It's not going to shine every day. But when it makes, when it, when it, when it's sunny, you make that money. Yeah. You bring it in and you bank it, and you spend it. You spend it safely. You don't blow it just because you have it because you may not have it next week. And it's taught me that you just don't watch your bank account. You fill it when you can, and you let your wife pay the bills. And <laughs> if she starts getting worried about jobs coming in, you realize you have to make a few more calls. And you know, would I like to drive a Ferrari? Yeah. Will I ever drive a Ferrari? No. But am I happy? Yeah. Am I buying a house soon? Yes. Is it a $600,000 house? No. It's a $160,000 house, but I'm going to be my home. I'm going to be a homeowner. And I'm going to be, you know, taking care of my family and I'm going to be, I am in charge of my own destiny. And as a military guy, that the value of that cannot be stated enough. That That is for me uh, to have my own freedom after sacrificing so much of it. That's just the sweetest thing. It's just the absolute, um, you feel like a winner, you know, on days when you can, you can feed your family and you do what you love at the same time. I had a conversation, one of the conversations I had recently where I asked the guy, you know, what does success look like to you? Which I feel like that's very similar to what you just said. Um, and he said, well, I'm about to buy a house. And I was like, and he was like, that seems kind of weird that that's what success looks like to me. And I, and I thought to myself, well, Maybe, I don't know, but I feel like to me, success would be doing what I love enough to support a lifestyle I'm proud of. Have you ever, have you ever heard of the imposter syndrome? <laughs> I live it. What are you talking about? Yes. Yeah. So deep down, you're standing on this stage and you're about to teach a class or you're, you're about to meet a big client or you're standing in front of the director of DGI's lobbying efforts and he's asking you questions about drones or the chief pilot is asking you in, in, in an email, how do, how do we want to change next year's drones? And you're just going, fuck, I hope they don't find out. I don't know what the hell I'm actually doing, right? <laughs> Deep down, everybody feels that sooner or later they're going to get caught, that they're just an imposter. And you realize everybody else feels the exact same way. And so you just got to fake it and make it through, right? You've just got to realize that maybe you don't choose your career. Maybe your career chooses you. And it takes more time than you realize to discover who you are. And you may get to the end of that journey and go, oh, that's what I am. I'm the combination of all the things that got me to this point. You know, an Air Force photographer, a drone nerd, uh, a public speaker, a media relations expert, uh, a crisis communicator in the Air Force, uh, a bomb loader. So I've learned all le- a couple things from each one of those lives that have taught me how to be who I am now, to be unafraid to stand in front. I mean, being a drone pilot, let's admit it, being a drone pilot is about being an attention whore. If you can't stand people staring at you while you're working, then you should not be a drone pilot, right? Yes. So if you can't turn it on, you've seen me, you've seen me turn it on and just, all right, it's the Parker show. Let's go. Right. Mm-hmm. If you can't turn that on as a drone pilot, then you probably should be the cameraman and maybe not the guy in front. Right. Or maybe you should be doing something else. Every single person is perfectly suited for the thing they love to do the most. You feel most at home when you're doing what you love. Right. Every single person is, the, is perfectly suited for the job or for the thing that makes them happiest. Your vision is killer, but your skills are weak, right? 
So the mm. longer you work on the way you, the person you want to become, the closer you get to that goal of perfection in your head. And everyone around you is like, holy cow, the guy's crazy. He's insane. It's awesome. Look at him fly. And all I'm thinking is, fuck, screwed that up. Damn it. Damn it. Let me do that again. It sucked. Let me do that again. Everyone's like, dude, seriously, you just flew through a flaming doorway. It's like, yeah, but I wasn't centered. Let me do it again. They're like, okay, that's enough. You're done. You're done. My cameraman's taking my controller out of my hands at least once and going, all right, you're done. You're, you're, you're done. You're done. Go have a seat. You're done. They're happy. You don't have to do it again. But but for me, I'm just like, damn it. I know what I want to. I know what I'm capable of. I know what I want to do. I want to be better at this. I want to. I want to show people how perfect it can be. And everyone's like, dude, you're fine. Just you know, when you hear people saying that, you could probably start learning other skills, but never, ever, ever, ever get complacent. That is some solid ass advice. Complacency kills, man. Oh yeah, complacency means people are going to eat your lunch tomorrow. If you ever tell yourself, yep. I'm good at this, I don't need to practice, you're about to get your lunch eaten. Someone else yeah. is not resting. Someone else is working to become you. They want to take you off. The, you, you know, if, you, if you're arrogant, you may think you're the king of the mountain, but there's always someone trying to climb that hill. And the second you stop climbing, someone else is going to put a pick in your back and climb over you. The second I stop learning is the second I start getting dumber. Um, and then I'm going to get eaten by this technology because where we are now is, is what, three years old, two years old? You know of any other industry or any other technology that's developed as quickly as drones have in the last three years? No, absolutely not. Yeah, it's a full-time job just keeping up with this stuff. So the second I stop learning, and I have to learn every day what I need to learn. You know, there's, there's a dozen different ways that I have to be good at my job. But if you just treat it as a goal to become as good as you can in a craft that you're passionate about, you will not waste that time because failures are failures are lessons. So I have a question for you because uh, I think ev- everybody I've talked to so far that's uh, found any sort of success outside the military, it's because they typically find a niche, like you said, right? And my question is, how do you view that now coming from the military where clearly in, in our career field, they pitch generalizing like they want you to be able to do everything at maybe a medium level versus being really 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 good at one thing being a generalist is very important i mean there's a reason we go through fundamentals when we learn something we have to learn why things are the way they are before we learn why we can make them different Mm -hmm. right you have to learn basic chemistry if you're going to be a ceramicist you have to learn how pigments work and you have to learn how heat affects the structure of ceramics right before you even throw a pot you probably probably want to know why you're throwing it in an oven mm-hmm. right so there are a hundred things i had to learn to become a photographer uh, that i use three or four of them but there's things that i needed to understand so being a generalist is really important um i would say more importantly is to not get shoehorned into well i'm a drone pilot because if you were to ask me if i'm good at one particular thing being a drone pilot is my job description, but I'm good at adapting technology to tell stories. What is some advice you would give somebody, not unlike myself, who is going to try to transition out of the military to remain in some sort of creative field? Uh, a couple of things. Um, one is I would reach out to uh, fellow peers that have done the same step that you have. And uh, don't be afraid to ask for not just guidance, but support. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, dude, I'm about to get out. I could, I would really like to not starve. Um, do you know anyone I can make a call to? Uh, your network is your most important asset when you're getting out of the military, especially all the people that are as trained as, as, as you know, as passionately as you are. Um, I would also strongly suggest that if you're going to be thinking about making money on it, is to, um, you know, master an aspect of your craft to the point where you can make enough money at it. You've got to keep doing what you love how to, what to do or you're not going to get better at it because there's a certain point where passion gets you to the field, mm-hmm. right? But dedication keeps you flying. You've got to do it every day. I will be completely honest with you. The best motivator in this regard is raw fucking terror. Being afraid that if you stop working, if you get lazy, you will starve. You have to say, I have got to work hard enough to earn my money with a skill set that I am good enough at to be paid for because it's a unique skill. Yep. You know what I mean? You're not going to have that much time when you get out. There's going to be a thousand things competing for you, and you don't have an office that you can sit in, or you don't have a quiet space that's not home that's full of distractions that's going to allow you to do that. Uh, find a routine to make your future ready. 
for me, it's the fear of failure. For me, the motivating factor for me, the overdriving, the driving thing is, you know, glory, it's fear of failure. Yeah, I believe that wholeheartedly as well. Like my, one thing I think whenever I'm, I don't know, trying to like half, half-ass a job or I'm like, oh, I could just phone this one in is like, no, it's not going to be good enough. My kids have to eat. Like that's what it comes down to. Right. You'll know. And you'll have to look yourself in the eye and go, I signed, because if you, if you, if you, if you phone one in, it makes it so much easier the next time to get away with mm-hmm. it. And then you, and then you hate your, because what happens as a civilian is you get out of the military. And the first thing that happens to you is you lose your uniform and you lose the ability to look at yourself in the mirror and look at somebody else that you work with and go immediately tell who they are, what they do, what their level is, what their qualifications are, you know, if they're competent or not in the civilian world, you don't have that. And the problem is, is you walk into a crowd and they can't do that to you either. So you have to know who you are. And so the biggest problem I had, and still to this day of three years after I get out of the military, I still say, who the fuck am I? What do I want to be when I grow up? You know, I don't want to grow up. I don't ever plan on growing up. You know, eight-year-old me thinks adult me is Tony Stark, for God's sakes. I play with drones all day and, and you know, fly RC planes for money. <laughs> I'm living my dream. But does that mean I am who I can be? Does that mean that's who I'm supposed to be? You may still, you will still ask yourself that question. You know, be prepared to answer that. And you can lean on, it originally, it came back to me when I ended up getting some photo work that was very similar to what I used to do. And I thought to myself, well, you're a drone guy now. And I was on the job and I realized the joy I felt at doing it. I went, motherfucker, you're, you're a shooter. You're a shooter. You've been a shooter. You're a shooter now again. You're always going to be a shooter own it love it It, at my core it's interacting with people telling their stories showing people what is going on in environments they can't go every time you take a photo or a video and you're recording this moment in history it's permanent and it's it's something that you need to have a certain amount of passion about because if you phone it in it shows and you're going to suck at it and you've been given an all-access pass to awesome to with a camera to walk into any room and take pictures if you let those people down that's just that's my philosophy is to go out and just kill it just go out there and just put leave nothing you know get done at the end of the day and slump into my car seat and go you know the one thing i say at the end of the day that makes me happiest is yeah i live today I made a difference, maybe one difference, maybe a dozen differences, maybe a difference in myself, maybe a difference in my craft, in my art. Maybe it's in the people that I love or that love me. Maybe it's in the, in, in the work that I do, but I made a difference. I changed the world that I live in in some way. I had an effect. I had an impact. I am not, I am not just along for the ride today. Every day you do that, you win. And it doesn't have to be defined by the amount of money you make or the number of photos you take or the things you learn. It's basically defined on do you derive satisfaction from the thing that you do absolutely that's my goal i want to light a fire or two or hundred um so and so i think it's good i really do appreciate uh you being just as fucking honest and direct as you are like i didn't expect anything less but it's refreshing even to, even to me and i consider myself somebody who is passionate and who does like to challenge myself and all those things right it, it's a nice reminder to like really put out today or tomorrow or whatever you know stop resting on your laurels yeah get up make something make something make a change make a difference make it cleaner make it better make it faster whatever just do something that changes your environment in a positive way or a person in your environment in a positive way it's not about being a creative it's about being a person that makes other people want to create with you damn Does that makes sense yeah it's heavy it's good stuff we need to use this to you know help people realize that they're not alone when they have a passion and that, you know, if you can get people to start going to workshops, you know, if you can get people to reach out to peers that, you know, their group may only have three or four people, but if they, you know, the internet's a wonderful thing, but I also think there's almost too much Mm -hmm. noise there. It doesn't take 10 years to get good at what you do. If you do what you love for six months, you're going to be better than 99% of the rest of the people on the planet that do it. It's that simple. All you have to do is care. You know, sometimes it's hard to whittle down what we do 
into a series of words, but I think that that's it. Just care. In order to be successful, all you have to do is care about your job, care about your passion, care about the people whose stories you're telling. And eventually, you're going to make better stuff and tell better, more interesting stories. I just want to thank Parker for his wise and poignant words this past hour. Um, Hopefully, you guys got something out of it. If you have anybody that you'd like to hear on the podcast that you want to know more from or you want to have me talk to to hear their story a little bit, reach out to me. All my information is in the show notes. Send me an email. Send me a Facebook message or something like that. And we'll try to get them on the show. Once again, thanks for listening. I hope you took away as much as I did. Until next time.